you know, can you adapt? Can you take advantage? And that goes back to those fundamentals again, having cash for flexibility, having mm -hmm. relationships with people so that when the opportunity comes or when a challenge comes, you go to your relationships, you go to your cash. Welcome to the House Hacking Success Podcast, where you'll learn the path to free rent and financial freedom through real estate. Featuring your hosts, Brad Labrie and Drew Klingler. Hey everyone, real quick before we start the show, Brad wrote an amazing ebook that will teach you everything you need to know about house hacking and living rent free. To get a free copy, text house hack all one word to 22828. That's house hack all one word to 22828 to get your free copy. Welcome to episode 39 of the House Hacking Success Podcast. This has been an incredible journey. It's been an amazing journey. I've loved every second of it, all the recording, putting all that content out there. I've really enjoyed all of it. Absolutely. And today we have Chad Carson, my absolute favorite guest we've ever had on the podcast. He's a best-selling author of Retire Early with Real Estate on Bigger Pockets. He's just an incredible, incredible person. Uh, and he highlights many things that we can be doing as house hackers during this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, how we should be studying, what we should be looking for. Uh, and then he goes into kind of giving us a guideline of going from your first house hack to financial independence and retiring early. He's absolutely carrying the torch for that movement. Chad's an amazing guy. He's extremely genuine. Uh, one thing I really respect about Chad is that he's just looking to help other people. And I think he's going to help a lot of people in this podcast episode with all the information that he gives out. Yeah, absolutely. And he talks about purpose. We talk a lot about in the podcast throughout it a purpose and what we can do to have a more purposeful and meaningful life. And that's what he's all about doing what matters most. That's his slogan, right? We, we get wealthy in real estate, but we also take it from there to go do what matters most. And that's what I love most about his message. Absolutely. And Chad also talks about house hacking. He was a house hacker himself. And he talks about how important it is to increase your savings rate, which can be done by house hacking. We're going to get deeper into that into the episode. Absolutely. And my favorite part about his courses online is his recession proof real estate because he went through 2007, 2008, 2009. He had bought 40 houses uh, in 2007, right at the peak of the real estate market, right before everything fell off a cliff. And so he knows about recessions. He knows about, uh, you know, dip downturns in the market. And so he gives us great insight into what we all should be doing. I'm really happy for all of our listeners to go through this podcast. Yep, it's a great one. I think they're all going to enjoy. All right, let's jump in. Welcome to House Hacking Success. Today we have a person I look up to a lot, sort of a mentor in my life, Chad Carson. Uh, been in, in his course, Real Estate Start School. His book, Retire Early with Real Estate, is an incredible book. Chad, we appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, it's a privilege. Really happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for people that don't know you, give us a little bit of summary uh, of your life, kind of being a Clemson University football player to now where you're kind of in the fire, uh, retire early movement. Yeah. So actually I just turned 40. So it kind of feels weird. Like when I played football, I was 18 to 22 and I still talk about it. Like it felt like yesterday, but it was almost 20 years ago or 18 years ago now. Uh, but yeah, I went to Clemson university, a little small town in the Northwestern corner of South Carolina with a really good football team and a big football program. And I graduated from college, kind of not knowing what direction I was going to go. I was a biology major pre-med, Thought about going that route, but I just wasn't ready to jump into grad school yet. So I took a break and started investing in real estate just with, you know, I had a thousand bucks, had my car paid for, didn't have any college debt. And so I just was able to kind of take a plunge 
and started flipping houses, wholesaling, where I'd go out and find deals for other people and make a small markup, you know, finding just being a deal finder for other people. And what started as a little temporary detour before I went back to the real world uh, turned into a full-time career. And I said, you know what? I think I'd rather just work for myself and ride around in my car and kind of got hooked on the, the whole idea of being an entrepreneur and just stuck with it. And so that's been 18 years ago. And I've transitioned a little bit now, more of a buy and hold uh, real estate investor. So we have rental properties. Is it me and a business partner have been doing this together for 18 years now. But that's uh, that's the kind of the nutshell of the story. I'm, there's a lot of details in between. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people say that millionaires are made during recessions. Uh, could you speak a little bit to your experience during uh, 2007, 2008? Yeah, it's, the, the timing was interesting for me because back in the beginning, when I first started, it was 2003, 2004. So it was kind of another run up and I was just trying to learn the business. My business partner and I were flipping houses a lot. And we finally got really good at buying houses where we actually had a lot of properties that we bought in 2007. So this is like, you know, right before things tanked and we were, you know, I just had my nose at the grindstone. I was getting good at negotiating and buying deals using seller financing, creative financing. And we actually had 33 closings in 2007. And so I need to tell people this. So before we talk about like predictions on what's going to happen right now in the future, they just need to know how bad I was at predicting the future in 2007. <laughs> here I was buying a bunch of properties and just like nose of the grindstone. And I think it was my business partner who kind of pulled the reins back a little bit more and said, you know, we just bought a bunch of properties, but maybe we need to like slow down a little bit. And um, we luckily, some of the things we did well pre-recession of 2008-9 were we just live frugally. Just part of it was just natural, but part of it was just a little bit of a fear of, all right, this is good right now, but you know what happens if things aren't good later on? We just never trusted our success <laughs> to, to an extent, and so we just set aside a lot of our cash when we made a flip, when we made money, and we lived. You know, we we my business partner and I both like would eat ramen noodles. I eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> I, I still eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I don't eat ramen noodles anymore, but um, you know, you just live cheap and you live. Um, not not get high on the hog, and we needed it because 2008-9 we were able to draw on a lot of those reserves that we had saved, a lot of that cash. And there's a lot of roller coasters, ups and downs. And it, the thing I learned about that recession was you just don't know what's going to happen. None of us have a crystal ball, but having the flexibility of having cash is a is a big deal um, because it can it can allow you to be kind of move with whatever comes your way, and you just don't want to be. Uh, backed into a corner where you you're kind of like a wild animal you know if you back a wild animal into a corner that gets you like kind of panicky and um when, when you when you get backed into a financial corner because you don't have enough cash flow it really can make you panicky it makes you make bad decisions and it can ultimately lead to some really some bad stuff um you know bankruptcy financial that kind of stuff absolutely absolutely so you talk a lot about this in your course recession proof real estate which is included in your uh real estate start school Talk a little bit about like the last 10 years. I mean, preparing, of course, we have COVID-19 right now, which is, uh, you know, a pandemic uh, shutting down a, a great uh, number of areas in the, throughout the country, uh, potentially the whole country at some point. We, we're not really sure. But talk about like what that has been the last 10 years, um, knowing what you went through during that time period and how it helped you prepare for right now. Yeah, it's, it's been a long run. I mean, like just if you look historically and we kind of step back because it's, it's, right now everybody's a little bit panicky. We're in you know April of 2020. So things are, people are like, what's going on here? Um, we're kind of in the eye of the storm, so to speak. But if you look back at it, we had a historic run up. I mean, 2000, whenever we got out of the recession in 2009, 
all the way to the beginning of 2020. I mean, that's like 11 years of growth. And it, you know, the thing we all have to remember, it is hard for all of us. Like this is a psychologically up and down game when you're an investor, is that the market always, always, always goes in cycles. It goes up, mm-hmm. it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. The thing we don't know is why. Like maybe it's gonna be a black swan event, like you know, a, a coronavirus. Maybe it's gonna be the fact that banks leveraged too much in 2008-9. Um, if people who've been in this business for 40, 50 years say that, wow, this is a new one. I haven't seen this one before. And that's we just need to get used to that. Yeah. But the thing, the thing that is comforting is you you can prepare for the fundamentals of what makes a good financial decision, no matter what the mark, what happens on the market. And I compare it to like sports, you know, I played football in, in college and I love basketball, I play pickup basketball. And when you play basketball, it doesn't matter who, what appo- opponent you're playing, the dribbling, passing, shooting, conditioning, like those all matter. Those are always important. And so I think the thing this has reminded me of now going through my second recession is that the fundamentals of finance and investing and being having good personal finance that doesn't change no matter what happens. You need to have cash reserves. You need to make sure your deals have profit. So you know, you're not just kind of stretching yourself too thin mm-hmm. and being too speculative. You need to watch your cash flow. Um, and you need to have a good network of people around you. That's like this is a people business. And in 2008 and nine, we did save some cash, but we had some really awesome, trustworthy people who loaned us money, like a local banker, private lender. We had awesome tenants who we had good relationships with and we took care of each other. During the downtimes, we helped them buy some of our houses, and so I just I, I think between those two things, cash and um, just focusing on your relationships, taking care of people, yeah, that that's never going to change, and that's really the fundamentals of what real estate's all about. Yeah, I love that because uh, even right now, you know, a lot of those, both of those two things are getting quite a few of the people that I know through right relationships. You talk about you know we'll, we'll talk later about private money lenders and. And some of the unique situations, but when you do develop those relationships, uh, you know, more than just business, but maybe something where people, you know, attribute to your character and they know that during the downtime, you're going to honor what you say you're going to do. Those are very, very important things. Yeah, that so exactly. You, that's a good point. Like in 2008 and nine, I had some private lenders who stuck with me. And here I am a 27 year old kid, you know, 28 year old kid going into a recession like that. And, you know, they took a chance on me to loan hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to pretty much, a, you know, somebody's in their 20s. Um, I had I, I promised them that I would follow through. And my my commitment to myself was, you know, I don't know what this recession is going to bring. There's some things I can't control. You know, I, this thing could knock me out. But the thing I know is that I will do everything I can bend over backwards, hustle, work, work as hard as I can to make sure my private lenders who loan me money are paid on time. And I, and they never missed a payment or never got behind. That's the same thing. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to do that with them again. I still have some of the, some of those same private lenders 17 years later who they're using the checks that I pay them every single month to fund their retirement, to pay for their groceries while they're quarantined in their house. And that's a really big responsibility, but it's also an opportunity that, that I, re- I really love private lending for that reason and, you, and working with individuals and partners because you can sit across the table from them and you help one another. It's a win-win situation. You trust them, they trust you. And that there's a really good book, you guys, I don't know if you've read, called The, the Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey. It was Stephen R. Covey, I think, the son of the, uh, the famous Stephen Covey. Okay. But it, it just reminded me, that book reminded me of how every single thing we do in business it, Every fancy concept we have, house hacking, private lending, none of that works unless you have trust between individuals. And that trust isn't something, it's not a fancy thing you can do in a, you know, in a overnight. You've got to build that trust. 
And it's, it's the number one commodity of your business. It's the thing that gets you through. It's the thing that when you ha have opportunities, that those people are there for each other. So it, it kind of sounds, it, sometimes it sounds a little bit of wishy or uh, kind of touchy-feely, but when it comes to the brass tacks and you get, get to these kind of situations, it really, that's where you have to go to the bank and use some of that trust that you, you built over time. And it's, that's a very uh, important thing to, you know, sort of solidify right now because it's a big opportunity. Most of the people listening to this are younger crowd. Uh, in their 20s, who you were maybe 27 back when you went through the recession. And this is the time that you prove that trust and that character, yes. right? During the tough time, not during the high times that we experienced the last 10 years, right? Exactly. Um, anyone can, you know, sort of be in good character. It's now. It's, you know, when things get tough, are you, you know, are you feeding yourself? Are you going to hustle to pay everyone else? And then, you know, uh, there's a great book called Leaders Eat Last, right? Um, yes. That sort of proves that point. And, and a lot of other books, the one that you, I haven't read the one that you talked about, but, um, this is a great time to sort of prove yourself as a young person to in the future rely on private money. And, and you know, maybe if, if things do get worse, uh, you know, get liquidity to be able to purchase properties and things like that. This is a great uh, it's a great point. Absolutely. And it's also a good time with your tenants. I mean, it, it, you know, your tenants are really they're almost like your employees that are. This has made me realize as much as ever. I knew it intellectually, but like we depend on our tenants. You know, we, we might be the, you know, the big, powerful landlord and all that. That's kind of the, the persona of it. But we depend on them like they they depend on us to provide them a house. But we 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 have no business if they don't have a job, if they don't pay on time. And so it's really brought home to me how interdependent our relationship is. And, you know, we have to pay our bills. Like, so we, we can't get like no rent, but at the same time, it, to the extent that we can all work together and kind of be in the same boat and figure, you know, sometimes uh, you, before the call, we talk, talked about it. Got to do a payment plan where you take some of your money now and some of your money over time to the extent that we can build a trusting relationships with our tenants and show them that we care about them and show them that, you know, we're not Superman or superheroes. We can't do everything, but we're going to try to work with them. You know, that that's the people who are going to be on your side after this is all said and done as well. Absolutely. So let's go into that a little bit uh, with, you know, COVID-19 right now is shutting down a great majority of the country. Uh, how has it affected you and what silver linings are you taking from this whole experience? Yeah, so I'm I'm in a little bit of a, a niche. Um, I, I do have some regular single family houses and some mobile homes that I just rent to families. So we've got some of that, but over half of the the units we have are college student rentals. So it's a it's a niche that's been really good for us. We've done well as Clemson University has grown, and as uh, we've we've been able to benefit from that, our rents have gone up, and we found some good deals on small multi unit properties primarily. But one of the challenges we face right now, and it's kind of still looming a little bit, is that all the college students are uh, working, doing remote school. And so this is, this is a never happened thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's, in, in the past, uh, college student rentals were kind of the recession proof type uh, investment niche because yeah. people, people always went back to school, even if they couldn't get a job in a recession. Mm -hmm. But what happens when there's a pandemic and you can't, uh, you're not going to school? It's, it's yeah. just unknown right now. So we'll get, we'll, Will students come back and just hang out and do the remote school from here? Will they have to cut back and say, I'm just going to live at home back in Michigan and then I'll come back to Clemson in the spring? Um, you know, that's that's the question right now. And so for college student rental people, we've all got to be looking at those cash reserves again and saying, all right, what are we going to do? What's plan B? If we don't have football season, we're, we're a town of 15,000 people that has 100,000 people coming to town for a football game. So all of the, you know, all the commercial businesses, the restaurants, the bars, uh, Airbnb, all that stuff revolves around football, seven yeah. weekends a year. So those are kind of the things on my mind in my local town, a lot of which I don't have answers to at this point. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to try to take it week by week, month by month. We have cash reserves in case things get really bad. 
But the, the silver lining of that, I guess, um, is it, it's sort of exposed the entire real estate market, I think, and the entire business market to see like where the vulnerabilities are that they were kind of hard to see before. Is this mm. sort of like that metaphor saying when the when the tide goes out, you know, you see who's swimming with no clothes, and that's that's kind of like that right now. There's there are certain types of real estate where people, even as bad as it is right now, people are quarantining where at wow. home. Yeah. And so if you if you're renting residential real estate that's in the median part of the market or the lower part of the market where people need their home, that's that's the best thing to have right now. Yeah. And Polished student rentals. I mean, that's a great niche, but it's it's kind of a second home market almost. That's what's ex, it's exposed it a little bit. Um, that's why it's not as stable as something in like a big metropolitan area, you know, l- lower price properties or medium price properties. Um, th- those are probably the most solid rentals because people can still pay their bills even if they're getting unemployment, things like that. And so I, th- I think that's the silver lining is the education you learn, what you're learning about it. The other silver lining will be there's gonna be opportunities. I don't know how. The optimistic side of me says, I hope this thing gets resolved pretty quickly. The realistic optimist in me says, though, that this could be a long haul. And until we get a a vaccine that really works, we're going to have a lot of, there's just a lot of things that could happen, a lot of shutdowns. And so I'm thinking there might be some opportunities to buy as well for people who just need to sell their property. If we get, you know, we don't get any tenants in our town for three months and people are are hemorrhaging cash, we're going to have some chances to go buy some properties that would be really good long-term investments. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even something we'll talk about later, owner financing has become something that's sort of been uh, out there for, you know, for new investors or or, uh, people looking to expand. Um, You know, a lot of people are looking for short cash, you know, immediate cash um, that own their property. So yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Tons of good opportunities. It's, yeah. If you, if you can get, that's why you want to have that cash. If you can get yeah. through the, the rush of the bad stuff, there's a lot of opportunities on the other side. So uh, I'd love to circle back and talk about those opportunities, but before we do that, um, after your experience with the last recession, uh, it's my understanding that you scaled back a portion of your real estate portfolio. Uh, could you explain to us and talk about what the driving force was in that? Yeah. So I'll go back to that story. Like when, when we bought 33 deals in 2007, my business partner and I, we, we had sort of been borrowing goals from other people and this is okay to do. Like, you know, when you first start, you just got to model other people. You got to emulate, you know, Oh, so-and-so buys and flips 50 houses a year. That sounds good. Let me go try that. And that's sort of the phase we were in. We just thought more was better. More deals is better. Let's just grow. We'll figure it out later. Um, well, we got to the end of that year and we, we were really busy we made some money, but we also made some mistakes. We bought some properties that weren't as good. And it was about the same time I read the book, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. It had just come out uh, a year or two before that. And it, it, there's one part of that where it sort of struck me. I, th- I think there's an exercise or something where it says there's, there's three currencies, at least three currencies in your business. Everybody knows about the currency of money. You want your business to make money. You want your investments to make money. But what is it doing for the currency of your personal time and what's your business and your investments? What are they doing for the currency of your flexibility and your freedom? And, he's, and the, the point was, you need all three of those currencies in order to do all the things you want to do in life, like traveling or being with your family. Or for me, it was playing basketball in the middle of the day for two hours. Like that was, that was something built with me and my business partner loved to do. And we, we, we made an exercise, my business partner and I did. We wrote down everything it was like, what are the things we really want to do? Like we just waved our magic wand. We could do whatever we wanted in life. What would it do? And it was things like traveling, playing basketball in the middle of the day, being with our friends and family. And 
some of those required money, but they were very like quantifiable. They weren't that big. But the thing we the, the thing that was really jumping off the page was we needed a ton of free time and flexibility to do that. And here we were buying 33 uh, closings. A lot of those are multiple properties, flipping houses all the time. And it really wasn't getting us what we wanted. There, there, there's, there, the people had always sold us, oh, one of these days you'll be able to enjoy the vacations and the time. Mm -hmm. And what we thought about was, well, why don't we like do that while we're growing? Like, why would we wait until we're 65, 70 years old to, to actually right. enjoy life? And so that was sort of the beginning of the financial independence, retire early movement. Let's, let's take some many retirements. Let's, let's enjoy our life a little bit. And so in 2009, like right in the depths of the, the, that recession, my wife and I sort of shuttered up the shop for four months and we went on a backpack, backpack trip to Spain. And uh, first of all, and then we went to Peru and South America. I lived there. We lived there for a month with a family. I learned to speak Spanish. We went to Chile and Patagonia and Southern, Southern Chile and Argentina, hiked around a bunch, saw penguins, went to all sorts of cool places, ended up in Buenos Aires in South America. And I learned to speak Spanish, met a lot of cool people. And really for me, as like kind of a go-getter goal setting kind of person forcing myself to take a break and step back and particularly in the Latin American culture, which is just a beautiful culture with, you know, who they really focus on family and balance and enjoying each other and friendships. It was just, it was kind of what the doctor ordered for me and in, in a way of just figuring out that, all right, my business doesn't need to dominate my life. It's still important. I love it, but let's find a way to use all three currencies. Let's buy certain types of properties that allow us to have a little bit more flexibility Let's build systems and operations that can allow me to hire other people to do a lot of the work that uh, I don't, I don't want to do so I can travel still. And that was a really big epiphany that I don't think we would have had if we wouldn't have gotten a little bit out of control in 2007. It's kind of like a math equation, too. When you write down like the things that are important to you that you want to do, you can calculate how much that's going to cost you and figure out what you need. It's, it's basic math, right? And then you can figure out what you need to invest to create that type of uh, income for yourself. Yeah. And one thing we learned was that you don't need as much money as you think. Uh, it, and, you know, it might be just me because I don't have fancy cars and I don't have fancy clothes. So like everybody's got a different amount of money, you know, like I'm very, a pretty simple taste. And luckily I married somebody who has pretty simple taste, but I think all of us, we did the math that you're talking about, Drew, if you really wrote it down and I, I encourage everybody to do it, like write down the things you really want to do and try to put a number behind them. How much money does that take? For us, like going in 2009, it was 15,000 bucks to take that trip. You know, we used travel award points. We, we just li lived out of a backpack. I mean, for, I mean, some people bought a, a car for that or spent 25 grand on a car. We spent four months on a life-changing experience for 15 grand. Like, it was the best investment I've ever made in my life. And when you start doing that, though, and quantifying it, not only will you be able to do that kind of stuff before you reach financial independence, but you'll realize that, all right, at some point, maybe I need 3,000 bucks. Maybe I need 5,000 bucks a month. There you go. I thought I needed 15,000 bucks a month because that's what I'm making at my job or something. But when you work it backwards and kind of quantify your life, that's the kind of realizations that you have for yourself. Yeah. And, and you had a, a great um, blog post, I believe this was a while back, but I think it was uh beater car to riches or something like that <laughs> uh, was the title of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I myself have done a similar path, but, you know, sort of the your mantra of savings rate, uh, money life manifesto and buy, you know, buying experiences over maybe, um, you know, cars or or status items or, you know, things that the tradi traditional American buys is the way to more fulfilling life. 
Yeah, and there's actually a lot of psychological studies that they're doing these days. I mean, it was always kind of common sense in the past. Oh, you know, don't, money can't buy you happiness. And I, I love making money. So like, don't get me wrong on this for people who are listening to this. I'm, I'm, I think we all should make money. But I think even psychologists study this stuff these days. And there's things like intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. And they do control studies where they put, uh, you know, they, they have people make goals, for example, of connecting with people and having relationships and experiencing type th certain types of things and giving back to the community and contributing and personal growth. Like those things have that kind of long, slow burn of fulfillment and happiness. The, the car, the, the house, like those make you happy. I mean, that's pretty cool. You get a big, huge car and it's awesome. You're going to have a rush, but there's the, the, the it's going to, it's going to wear off really fast. It's going to, it's the hedonic treadmill, they call it, where as soon as that thing's done, it, it wears off. It's like a Christmas present that you open and wrap up and you're done with it two days later. It's just, it's just a matter of how long it's going to take. And so, you know, science says that you build your life on a pretty solid foundation of intrinsic motivation. And that's, that's something we as entrepreneurs can kind of fall into because when you, when you, and I know I have too, like you get making money, you get to buy stuff. It gets, it's, you know, you want to buy the next thing and the next thing, and it, it's a rush, but over time for long fulfillment, um, that's, you kind of have to figure out for yourself what that balance is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. so, so there's sort of uh, two groups listening to this right now, people that are uh, maybe newbies that have in house hack that are uh, wanting to, and then there's another group that's maybe in a growth mindset that maybe wants to get their second or the next deal. Uh, what should each group maybe be thinking about and doing during this COVID-19, you know, we don't really know how long this is going to last here in Michigan. We're locked down uh, at a stay home order. Um, a lot of other places around the country. Like, what would you say to each group right now? Yeah, I'll go back to a, a sports metaphor again, because that's the way I think about the world a lot. Um, you you want to play defense first. So, yeah, defense wins championships. So in your personal life, financially, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, you might think your job is secure. You might think that, that things are good, but you just don't know. Like none of us are good at predicting that. So the first thing I would say before you become an investor, you know, recalibrate your own personal finances, make sure you have enough reserves. Um, I like to think about it like six months of personal expenses and cash in the bank and six months of your real estate expenses, cash in the bank at a minimum. Like if you can get more than that, if you can get in 12 months, if you want to be super conservative and sleep a little bit better at night, get 12 months. And if you don't have like a lot of people don't have that, it might be too late. You might, all right, I don't have, to, I would have done that last year, but I hadn't done it. Right. Um, so then you, maybe you go to plan B, like think about, all right, I have a retirement account. I don't want to take money out of my retirement account, but there's some new laws and cares that I'm still reading a lot of this stuff, but you need to look at like, what's my plan B is, is that if I run out of money here, if my tenants don't pay their rent, or if I lose my job, if I haven't started, if you haven't started yet, like, do I have a plan just to pay my bills? Like that's, that's always number one. You got to stay in the game. But if you feel comfortable there, if you're like, okay, I got my defense taken care of, the the offense I would suggest are a couple things. Like you're at home all the time, everybody's here. Um, to the extent that it's allowed in your state, if you can still walk around your neighborhood or something, um, I think so far we can do that in South Carolina. You can still walk around neighborhoods, look at houses, kind of just get a feel for things. While you get some exercise, while you jog, while you walk the dog, something like that. That's, that's, that's walking for dollars. You know, you're just you're just getting out in the neighborhoods, get out from behind your computer to get a feel for what neighborhoods are like and what's happening. Because to me, like whether you're a brand new investor, whether you're an experienced investor, like the the number one skill you have as an investor is your knowledge of the market. 
And so if you can spend this time at home, both on your computer and off the computer, studying the market, figuring out where the best locations are on your town, figuring out what's selling for what, what's renting for what, talking to realtors, you know, having those conversations, just look at it like, like this is, again, a sports metaphor, like your exercise every day is knowing the market better than everybody else. And it's going to be changing a lot. So if you can do that, whether you've already bought a property or you're looking to buy your second or third one, that's where no matter what happens in the next two, three, four months, you'll be the one who's prepared based on your knowledge to understand what it means to have a good deal. Whereas other people might be a little thrown off or they might be delayed and you'll be prepared. I know uh, we don't have crystal balls and we can't really you know, predict exactly what's going to happen, but how do you see this pandemic playing out? in real estate? And uh, when do you think we'll begin to see some normalcy? Yeah, uh, this is where I had to go back to my disclaimer on what I, how, how good I was at predicting in 2007. So <laughs> we, can, we can have fun with it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, what, what I'm hearing right now is, you know, like the peaking in my state in May, like the peak of the number of people getting it, but then, you know, a month or two of kind of coming back down the mountain, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. So, I mean, we're, we're at least looking like June, July, is where we, you know, before we even kind of have some kind of sense of normalcy, I think in our area, and it's probably, it might be a little sooner for other places um, who had it earlier. Um, but then the thing that's just uncertain for me, and this is just the, like none of us, there might be some people listening who know more about medical viruses and spread of viruses. And I, I'm just like, I was a biology major in college. That's dangerous. I know nothing about all that. Um, but, you know, could we have relapses? Could we have, you know, even if we're back in the market, does that mean we're partially back? And only some people are working. So that's an uncertainty. The other thing is, as I've started just like pulling back the thread of like, all right, this business is connected to this one. If this one fails, what happens to that one? And there's just a lot of connections that I can't even begin to fathom. And so I'm just, I think the chances of us going to recession, again, I don't have a crystal ball, is pretty good. And is that, you know, how big of a recession that is depends on a lot of like government response, how bad things get, how long this thing lasts. But I think the, the here's the message for what we have to do as investors. Like none of us can predict any of that, but we have to be realistic optimists. We've got to we've got to prepare for the worst case scenario, so that if it gets better, like we're good, right? And so all of us need to be preparing for the long haul and saying, all right, what happens if it gets into the fall and I'm getting half of my rent from my tenants or a quarter of my rent from my tenants? Like could could I survive that kind of stress test? And if you can't survive that then maybe that, that's where the cash reserves come in. Maybe you need to be thinking about your backup plan to your backup plan. And, and I think the people who think ahead a little bit and prepare for those kind of bad scenarios, you're not being a doomsdayer at this point. You're just being prepared. That doesn't mean you can't be optimistic and go hustle and hope things are going to be better. That just means you're, you're playing both sides of that coin. And that's more my approach right now. I'm, I'm nervous about it. I think things can go longer. I hope, I'm, I, hope I don't know what I'm talking about. And I hope we, <laughs> we can kind of get to this a, a little bit faster. Yeah, absolutely. The, the trouble with it is just how well they can only print so much money, you know, to sustain us so long. And so I think that's a great approach, kind of playing it on both sides because no one knows. Uh, even a lot of doctors, you know, I've I read a little bit about it like you do, and I know nothing. Uh, but even the, you know, their their graphs and their studies are changing by the day, right? And and their projections are changing. So no one really knows. And, and just preparing yourself for, for both ways is, is really important. The company I work at, CEO, sent out an email yesterday. Uh, just talking about what's happening in China and most of the factories are up and running like normal now. Uh, one thing that it has impacted was restaurants and they're only at like uh, 35% of what they were pre-coronavirus. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, one of the benefits we have is looking to countries like South Korea, China, 
Italy. They're you know a couple months ahead of us, so you know, maybe mm-hmm. we can we can look at a little bit about what's happening. Um, but yeah, one of the questions I have is how fast will it take to kick back up? You know, right now they're the China's able to sell and and their factories are going to the rest of the world, who's still kind of getting re- who's still kind of falling apart a little bit. Yeah. But right. um, yeah, that, that's what the optimistic side. Like maybe you know August, like things are back to like eighty percent of normal, and that'd be great, right? People can go back to work, get out of that. But then there's going to be things, and this is the thought we need to pay attention to that'll be interesting. Like some things are going to fundamentally change. It's, it's just the way. Every time a big something big shock like this happens in our society, there's going to be some good changes. There's going to be some challenging changes, and that's why like the nimble, the nimble investors like us, we have a benefit as small investors. We don't have this huge ship, this Titanic ship that we have to drive like a big company. We're just little small investors, which means we can turn on a dime. We can change, and that I think the name of the game is flexibility. It's resilience. You know, can you adapt? Can you take advantage? And that goes back to those fundamentals again, having cash for flexibility, having mm-hmm. relationships with people so that when the opportunity comes or when a challenge comes, you go to your relationships, you go to your cash, you you talk to your tenants, you you work things out. And all, you, being a step or two ahead of everybody else is all you need sometimes to, to really take advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love the point you made earlier about relationships. Um, because it really is important. We need to lean in. Everyone needs to lean into those relationships right now. Of course, cash and, and you know, getting through is important, but also, um, you know, fine tuning those relationships. So let's sort of transition uh, maybe to your house hack. Your, um, so your first property was a single family, from my understanding, and you owner finance, but then you uh, bought a four unit and you sort of combined the uh, house hack with birth strategy, uh, pulling money out. Talk, talk us through the financing of that and then maybe the rehab and, and, uh, how that property turned out. Yeah, sure. So this was my second property. It was this fourplex. I moved into that house for like nine months and I realized I couldn't afford it. I was like this, this, I was spending like 800 bucks a month and my brother was living in the extra bedroom with me and he was trying to work in my real estate business. And I was like, I've got too much negative cash flow going out. Like I can't afford this house. And so I just moved, I turned it into a rental and we've, I still have that rental. It's done, done pretty well. and It's gone up in value. Um, but I moved it quickly, moved into a fourplex and I found a four is a foreclosure and talk about your network and relationships. I had one of my private lenders was riding around and noticed this house uh, or this fourplex in my town of Clemson. It was vacant. It had Merry Christmas spray painted across the front of it. Uh, it was ugly. It had an outline of a body in one of the apartments and I couldn't tell if it was like a real like outline of a body or just like somebody, somebody just come by and was planning to play a joke on me. And I was looking for candid cameras and <laughs> hidden cameras and stuff. <laughs> Um, but the the cool thing about the deal was it had a lot of potential on the upside. And so we I negotiated with the bank who had it listed and got it at a price. I think it was 70,000 bucks or so is what I bought it for. And but but I was a pretty young investor without a full time career. So I had to go to a local bank who was willing to give me like basically an in-house commercial loan for 80 percent of that purchase. That was part one. Part two was I went to the private lender. So this is a professor of mine uh, at Clemson University who I who was a business professor. I got to know him. He helped us do our first deal back in the day when we flipped a house and he became a relationship who, and I, I actually taught him, he didn't know this, but he had he had a self, an IRA, uh, you know, a retirement account and it was sitting in a CD or something and he didn't really like what it was. He didn't want to be in the stock market with this money, but he didn't want to be in a CD at half a percent either. And so I explained to him that he could do a self-directed IRA where he could basically loan money to somebody who bought real estate if he put it with the right custodian. 
And I showed him how to set it up and I went and did all the paperwork for him. And we talked to a CPA, you know, what usually the, the initial answer by your CPA or your attorney who hasn't heard of this kind of stuff is like, oh, you can't do that. That's illegal. You can't do that. And so here's the 24 year old kid, like saying, no, no, sorry. You're, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just, but I'm, but I'm <laughs> saying maybe you should rethink this a little bit. Um, so we, we got it and he actually loaned me money in second position and was, was the money to basically put the down payment and the fix up money. I put a little bit of money. You know, I think I had a thousand bucks or two, but it was mainly those two. And so we bought it for 70, ended up putting about, um, let's see, I think 40,000 bucks in repairs, $45,000. And I, I moved into unit number two. I rented out the other three units and got it stabilized, got 1200 bucks a month coming in from those other three units. So 400, 400, 400. And then six months later, I went to the bank and the property appraised for 155,000 bucks at that point. Um, based on the income of the property and other comparable properties in the area. And so I was able to refinance and get $120,000 loan and pay off the commercial loan, pay off my private lender. And I got a five and a half percent interest rate at a really good long-term loan. And that was pretty cool. You know, it was a way to, to I was basically paying, I had 1200 coming in and I had, uh, I think taxes, insurance, principal interest and all was like, you know, 1100 bucks, 1050, something like that. So I was living positive 100 bucks. I had some money left over to pay for some repairs and other things. And that's when I became addicted to house hacking. So this is, this is good. I can, <laughs> I, can, I can live for free and have a long-term investment. I like this. And you lived there for a long time, right? Four or five years? Yeah. Yeah. I moved. I love that. I still am tempted sometimes. Like, oh, why don't I move back <laughs> into unit number two? Like life was a lot simpler back then. Yeah. Um, my wife, I, I was not married at the time. I got married a couple of years later. And that was our first home together was unit number two at, at that fourplex. And we lived frugally, you know, we combined, she was still working at a, as a Spanish teacher. I had my income from real estate. So we were able to save a ton of money for this. The today is, has been really benefited us by living so frugally. Um, and then eventually we decided to have kids and we moved to a house. And so we moved to like a 1400 square foot house that um, was just a little bit, a little bit bigger, but we kept that as a rental property and it's still done really well. And we actually, I read an article about this last year that we paid that off. Um, in December of last year. So we, we paid that loan, original loan off. And now, or because we paid it down to like 60 grand or 70 grand, something like that. And, and just decided to, to go ahead and knock it out. And so it's pretty cool to see the life cycle of that fourplex yeah. kind of have changed over time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. So you used a lot of seller financing, um, including your first deal. Uh, how can people use that if it's something that they're interested in uh, taking advantage of? Yeah. So seller finance. So let me explain that to people just so they understand what it is, because it's kind of a catch all phrase for a lot of different techniques. And the um, the deal I did with a fourplex was, you know, a bank loan and it was a private loan. So those are two. I look at these like as tools in your toolbox. And so you, when you're going out to buy properties, it, it's to your advantage to have as many financing tools as possible because you don't know, it's kind of like working on a house. Like you don't know what tool you're going to need. And seller financing is is a tool a lot of people don't know how to use. But one of the big benefits is, is, is beneficial to you as a buyer because you can negotiate often a lower down payment. You can negotiate a interest rate that's really attractive. You can get better terms sometimes. Um, and it, it can be very beneficial for the seller because essentially what they're doing is instead of getting all their cash up front, they're getting some money from you up front and they're turning a what was often a, like a landlord. It was a, a hassle. It was a, they had to manage it. They're turning that into a regular passive income stream 
and they're letting me, the buyer, do all the hassle and the property management, and they're just going to get a check from me on the first of every month. So it's, it's a really nice way. It's almost like an annuity in the financial world where you turn this asset that you have that was a kind of a, a little business, you turn it into this passive uh, income stream that you can use to retire if you're a landlord, if you're a person who sold it. So that's that's kind of the framework of what seller financing is, is that the seller is becoming the bank for you. And so I, I bought my first house that way where the, this was another landlord. He was in Greenville. He was just too busy. He had too many things going on. And so I negotiated a deal where I paid him 5,000 bucks down. And then it was a, it was $120,000 purchase. $115,000 was the balance that I still owed him. And we negotiated a, a, essentially a contract where I paid him every single month, um, part of the, a little bit of principal, the rest of it was interest. So it's, it's almost like a bank loan. The only difference is the person financing it to me is the seller instead of the bank. And once I learned that that was possible, I would go to sellers and start talking to them. And I would actually give them um, multiple offers. I would, I would offer them cash. And that was typically my lowest offer because I wanted to get a bigger margin from the full price when I paid cash for it so I could flip it or so I could do a bird deal or whatever. But I was willing to pay a little bit more. I wasn't willing to overpay for the property. But if they gave me a 30-year fixed 3% mortgage uh, and it was a really good long-term property, I was willing to pay 80, 90% of the value of the property and, and because it was, a, it, it was in a good location. And so that's where the win-win would come in for our landlord. They could transition out of the property, get a reasonable price for it. They, they, if they were to take the money and put it in the bank, they get like 1% on a CD, but maybe I'd pay them 3% or 4%. And they would be, it was a really nice transition point for them. So I, I bought s- several properties from landlords in particular. Sometimes it was an a, a heir to an estate or something where they were willing to finance it to me after we negotiated, after we got to trust each other, um, we would work out a deal like that. And I want to reiterate that to people listening if they miss that, that the multiple offer situation. I think that's phenomenal. And it works a lot because, you know, like you said, you're a cash offer, which might come from, you know, private money. um, And we can get into that, you know, uh, as well. Um, And then, you know, a bank loan and then seller financing. Right. And you're giving them incentive to give you that seller financing. And one of the unique things about it is that it's, it's the transaction itself can be very low cost. You know, it's, you know, at least my, uh, I've done it a couple of times and, you know, one of them was like 60 bucks, I think was the total transaction because I had to record a couple of deeds and, and whatever, you know, it can be very uh, inexpensive and you're sort of enticing them. Uh, and then with that first deal, speak to the fact that you end up saving $15,000, I believe at the end of it, uh, from my understanding, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually did a couple of them and I've written about, I think you're referring to one, another one I I've okay. done two different. Yeah. So there was another seller financing did, which was the, the, yeah, let, let's go to that one. So I bought a house seller financing and we, we paid this couple and this was a really awesome couple. They were Methodist ministers who ended up being the, the ministers who married me and my wife uh, whenever we got married one day. So like talk about relationships, you build relationships with your sellers, with your financiers, you, you help them, they help you. And I think that's something a lot of people have to get over. They think a lot of buying properties is, you know, you're the big the big investor who's got to talk people down and you just have to trick somebody and they're going to, you know, for them to do do a good deal with you. And that, that's not my experience at all. Like they're, my experience is you make offers. And if even with a price that's below full value, like they sell it to you open eyed, knowing that I'm taking a discount because um, I have another thing to do with that cash or I need to sell it quickly. Like it's, you, you can do this business being transparent and being open with people. And this particular deal that I did, I bought it on seller financing 
and we um, paid them for several years. And then we got to the end of it though. And we had an opportunity where our tenant wanted to buy the property and they wanted to get a, um, and they were, they were ready to buy it. So we agreed to sell it to them. But I said, we need to go talk to our, um, our a person who is financing the house to us, make sure that's okay, make sure they're okay with that. And as we talked to them, we realized that they, and actually a better deal for them was they just wanted to get their cash at that point and just go ahead and get cashed out. And I told them, like, here's my numbers. Here's what we're trying to do. We, you know, we, we have another five, six years to pay you on this note. And they said, well, we're willing to take a discount on this note if you'll just go ahead and give us cash right now. And so what, what we ended up doing was finding another, this is getting a little convoluted, but we found another private lender to basically take their place and, and come in and we were able to cash them out. And we, we owner financed the property to our tenant who had a, a big down payment. And so our original people who financed the property to us, they got their cash, they're made whole, they'd gotten interest in the meantime. This private lender who stepped in, they were able to get a, an above average interest rate because that person started paying them for the next, and they're still paying them as far as I know. Um, and then we were able to get the gap, the difference between what we paid them all for and what, what we sold the property for. And that, that's not a, that's not a one-on-one deal. That's like, a, you know, yeah. two or one, but there's some really cool stuff. I guess everybody just remembers this is that when you start seller financing properties and you start talking to people who are individuals, there's all sorts of creativity that can happen. You can switch roles. One person can be the lender. One person can be the buyer, the borrower. Um, it, it gets really fun and it brings some creativity and some flexibility to your business. And that, that's another thing that's important in the recession, the more flexible you are. We were able to have a lot of these seller financing and private lending relationships so that when we got to the great, great recession and things went bad, we never had to use it. But we knew that, all right, worst case scenario, we'll, we'll talk to our private lender. Maybe we give them equity in this property or give them another property here so they, they're made whole. Uh, it's really difficult to do that with banks, uh, particularly commercial loans, banks where they have a lot more triggers and balloons and things on them, whereas private lenders, seller financing has a lot of flexibility behind the scenes. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about you is how creative you are with your deals uh, and structuring them. So without getting into weeds, let's sort of talk about those tools uh, in our tool belt for as far as financing, right? Uh, we yeah. talked a little bit about um, uh, seller financing. We touched briefly on uh, private money on your first deal. Um, so yeah. let's maybe talk about private money, uh, hard money, you know, commercial loans you talked a little about that you got, and then maybe um, some of the uh, owner financing loans that, you know, more of the traditional FHA and traditional and uh, conventional uh, talk a little about financing and how you teach your uh, students. Yeah. So you may just go down the list there, talk about yeah, each yeah, one a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So we talked about seller financing a little bit. So that's when you're buying a property. It's typically somebody who has a lot of equity in the property. That's why somebody's owned the property for 20 or 30 years and they they don't owe 150000 bucks on a $200,000 house. They, they might owe nothing on the house or maybe owe 25000 bucks. If you see somebody who has a lot of equity like that, they're potentially a candidate for seller financing. Those are your, that's, that's the best candidate. Um, so that's, that's option, option one, um, private loans. We talked about a little bit about like my, my, my professor who has a self-directed IRA or has a 401k or, you know, there's all sorts of people who have 401ks or IRAs from an old job and they don't realize that they could actually transfer that over once they left their job to a custodian who allowed them to self-direct it. So for all of you out there, if you want to build sort of your own access to a, your own bank of funds, you've got to educate people. You, you have to go talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk. Uh, you got to be a little careful of family on borrowing kind of retirement accounts. But if 
you talk to friends, investment friends, go to your local real, real estate meetups. If you find people there who have a hundred thousand bucks in their IRA, it might be sitting there and they, they can't loan it to themselves. That's one of the rules. You can't loan that money to you on your own deal. But if they met Bradley, if they met Drew and they said, and you, you showed them a deal like I did with my professor, here's a deal where I'll pay you 6% interest for five years. And it's going to be a rental property for me and I'll buy it. I'll pay you interest every month. And then we'll go from there. You could show them how that could be a really good deal for them and how they could get an above average interest rate. They can get payments over time. Um, I, have, I have some of my private lenders who are interested in that kind of deal. That's more what I do now where they'll do a, just a simple interest rate, 6% interest. I actually do like a 15-year a uh, long loan instead of a five-year. Like I want to get a little bit longer. Uh, but early on, I had to do one-year, two-year, five-year loans just to get the kind of comfort level with them. Mm -hmm. um, so, But that's that's my kind of deal right now. But in the beginning, if you're flipping houses or if you need to buy that that fourplex that I bought, you might need to pay somebody 8%, 10%. You might have to pay a higher interest rate in order to kind of get over that hump of trust so that they know you're for real. And, it, and I think it'd be worth that. Like if, yeah. if you can afford to do that early on, like that extra interest you have to pay to build a relationship with that person and demonstrate what you can do uh, could be worth it. Because what happens over time is you demonstrate you can perform and those same people you pay 10% interest to over time will start lowering their interest rate. They'll say, okay, I'll do 8%. Okay, I'll do seven percent. I'll do six percent because your riskiness to them starts going down once you've demonstrated what you can do. And so that's that's private lending in a nutshell. You have to take some work, take some relationships. You got to go out and meet the people, but it takes some education. The more you learn about it, and, and and you can hold their hand a little bit and teach them how to do it, you're adding a lot of value to those private lenders. Um, so that's that's two. Um, another tool in your tool belt is commercial loans. Um, so I, I've used those a pretty good bit. And the, a commercial loan, there's all sorts of different sources of money out there for commercial loans. And it's it's kind of a catch-all phrase for um, just all sorts of different uh, banks, commercial lending departments of like national insurance companies, things like that. I, I typically go to my local bank where I have my, my banking accounts. I happen to bank at First Citizens Bank, which is kind of a regional bank. And I've, I've built a relationship with them with a local commercial department. And th this is not the people who set up your checking accounts. These are the people who are upstairs or in another room and they loan money to businesses to, to lease their building or to buy a building for their business or to people like you who are landlords who are buying properties. And the, the benefit of those loans is kind of like a private loan and that you get a relationship with a person who can make a decision right there in the bank instead of having to go like on an FHA loan or something like that where they have to do an underwriting somewhere else. Um, I like that it's a real person making that decision. The downside of it is the commercial loans, the terms of those are not as good. Like the interest rate could be 3%, 4% today, which is really good. But then they'll have a seven-year loan or a five-year loan meaning whatever you owe in five years or seven years, you got to pay the whole balance of it to that, at that time. And that's a, that's a really risky thing if you have a bunch of those, because what happens if five years from now, we're in the middle of a great recession and you can't, you can't refinance those. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so you just, you've got to be thoughtful about that, of not loading yourself up with too many obligations where you have to come up with 150,000 bucks on three properties at one time that's really difficult if you can't, yeah. you can't, you can't assume that you could do it at all, at all the time. Yeah. And so yeah. that leads us to the last, the last one's more conventional financing, which a lot of your listeners probably are more familiar with um, going to the, the lending department of your bank, or to a mortgage broker, getting uh, you know 20% down or five or 10% down loan, 30 year fixed, 20 year fixed, maybe an FHA loan, like a federal housing administration, 
VA loan, which is a Veterans Administration. Those are amazing. Like if you can do those loans, those are really awesome. Low interest rates, long term. The the challenge of those is when you're buying a property and it's a really good deal and it needs a lot of work. It's, it's difficult to move fast. With those. It takes 45 days or you know a long time. Mm-hmm. I haven't done one of those mm-hmm. in a long time. Mm-hmm. So uh, my my advice is on a on a, a house hack or something early on. As long as um, if that's your if you have a W two job, you have good income, good credit. That's a really good source to start with if you can. But I would also go to like plan B, like try to talk to private lenders, try to talk to a commercial bank, just in case you get that really hot deal that you need to move fast on. I would prefer to have the option to go buy it quickly with a commercial loan or with a private lender, fix it up, and then come back and do like a conventional loan six months later. And, and for the lingo for that, for people who've listened a lot, it's called it's a bur- the Burr strategy. You buy it, you remodel it, get it rented. Then you refinance it uh, six months later, four months later, whenever you can do it. Yeah, um, it's a little bit. It's a it's a better strategy if you're trying to buy good deals and move fast. There's a little bit more. There's a few more moving parts, but I think that's that's what a lot of investors choose to do. Yeah, and something that I've done, and I'm actually helping someone do now as an agent, uh, is utilizing owner financing to get the deal done and locked up. Um, and then six months later, after you do maybe some renovations, moving in and getting a long term. Because one of the benefits, like you mentioned, um, you know, to owner financing is that you get long-term fixed rate debt, right? And so you don't have to deal with some of the, you know, maybe fluctuations in interest rates like we had maybe pre-2007. There's still some of those. Um, but also you get 30-year rather than a balloon yeah. like you talked about, five years, right. seven years, 10 years. Um, and so, you know, that's something practical and tangible that uh, people can potentially combine, which is owner financing and then long-term. That's smart. Yeah, I like it. I really I hadn't thought, hadn't thought about the owner financing Burr strategy. That's that's really cool. I like that. Yeah, it, it worked for me, and uh, you know I'm working with a house hacker right now um, that's attempting to do that as well, especially in this market. Um, I, I've gotten a few phone calls from you know landlords that own under other businesses. Uh, I got one today that he owns some uh, retail stores, right? And retail is just getting hammered right now. Yeah. They're all shut down. They got you know they got these notes that are still due uh, regardless of whether people are paying or not. Um, and so, uh, one, you know, called me today and said, he's wanting to sell one of his properties. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there are a lot of people that potentially would be willing to talk about owner financing right now. Um, so something people could talk about. You just jogged my memory on something, Bradley, like something else to think about as you're putting your tool belt together. A lot of you are going to be out there in the market the next three, four months. And if, if the real estate market does soften up a good bit, just remember that you as a buyer have you have more it's a buyer's market so you have more of an advantage than that you had to change your psychology a little bit and one of the offers you could make people is if they're having trouble making their mortgage payments you might offer to go to their bank and see if you could either assume that mortgage like so if, if that bank is like if you're paying if they're two payments behind on their mortgage and you're willing to bring it current there, there might be a, a situation where that mortgage company lets you fill out some paperwork to assume that loan or maybe even over the short run, maybe they're okay with you just fully disclosing it to them and taking it subject to the loan, buying it and taking over payments on it. It's a little bit more of a creative strategy. Mm-hmm. But as long as you're being transparent, you're telling everybody about it, the seller, the bank, insurance company, all of that. That's another strategy, particularly when people are having trouble making mortgage payments, where maybe you buy a $150,000 house, they owe 100000 bucks on the mortgage, and maybe you can go to the seller and pay them you know, 5000 bucks right now. And they they take back a second mortgage for the for the balance of that for twelve months until you can get refinanced or something. Um, that 
that agents like you who are very creative, when it when when markets get tough, it's that kind of agent and that kind of house hacker who does really well. It's it's the the last ten to twelve years have been so easy. Like we've we've had it so easy when it comes to financing. What we need to do now, if we do get into a little bit softer market, is think is talk to people who are in not only 1998, 90 yeah, or 2008, 2009, people who were in the early 80s and the late 70s who had to get super creative when they had 17% interest rates and things were going, you know, we had totally different markets then and agents and investors had to get really creative and think outside the box. And we haven't had to do that in a long time, but it's always good to remember that. Study your history and understand that the the, the businesses and the agents and the people who adapt to the what's what the market's giving them are the ones who survive and are able to make it to the next the next phase. Yeah, and just a quick side note for anyone listening, uh, I wholeheartedly believe that the best course online right now is yours, Chad. And you know, with this downtime, um, you know, and it, people that are trying to you know utilize these creative strategies, we we get a little weeds. And we're kind of doing a high level uh, overview of it, but going through your course, I think it's phenomenal. You break it down incredibly well. Uh, we, ha- you know, there's accountability partners. Uh, I'm still in contact with my accountability partners. I can't remember when I, I think it, it's been over a year, um, you know, since I took the course and I'm still, you know, in contact with them. If anyone is out there, you know, quarantined and looking for something to learn and specifically these creative strategies, I think that's an incredible uh, course. And from my understanding, what was it? Uh, two or three pay it's only, uh, you know, it's only like $800 and you broke up the pay, I think, uh, for three pays or something like that. So it's very affordable. Yeah, we we lowered the price. We had it at nine ninety seven before, and just with the the market and what's going on, we lowered the price to seven ninety seven. And I'm doing payment plans. And we actually we actually just closed this kind of an open close course. Okay. But but if some of your listeners listen to it and they're like, hey, I want to get in there, and you can go to my you can just email me. Go to my website coachcarson.com, and I have a contact page there. Just send, you know contact me, and and we we'll we'll, we'll get y'all in. And 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 the, the cool thing about the course is you know, there's a lot of information out there. Um, but one of the things I try to do is as a coach, you know, coaching and sports is a big part of my, my background is, is getting to like the fundamentals of your sport. And so financing, as y'all all hear is a, is a fundamental, and this really is a good opportunity to go back to the fundamentals, to learn the things that, that, that make the most sense. The, and the, the more you can come out of a situation like this, that's challenging, going back to your roots, going back to your fundamentals you're going to be ready to do to kind of whatever comes for you. And that's, that's what I try to build my course on. Sometimes it's not as sexy as like, you know, there's a lot of courses out there or books out there that are on one little niche or one little thing. I'm trying to take, I have, I have all those niches too. I can teach you to burst strategy. I can teach yeah. you to house hack, but what I would rather do. And I think most the people who join the course resonate with that is like, let's learn like the fundamentals here. Let's build a foundation. And if you're a house hacker, we'll go that route. We'll go to kind of down that path. If you're somebody who's investing remotely from California into another place and you got to, you know, buy a rental property long distance, let's learn how to build a team and hire people and run the numbers that way, because yeah. there's all sorts of different applications of, of those fundamentals. So I yeah, appreciate absolutely. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, I've done some of the, you know, $5,000, you know, courses or whatever before. Um, but this one really, it really, you really do a very good job of like defining, all right, let's, there are a lot of strategies, but like, what should you, what works best for you? You know, let's, let's start with that. Let's figure out like which niche you want to uh, go through. And then you, you know, it's, it goes through personal finances. It's just a very thorough course. And I, I highly uh, recommend people doing that. Thank so, you. So just transitioning here, uh, our favorite chapter in the book, by the way, uh, it's I think it might have been the first chapter, but you talk about the Money Life Manifesto. 
uh, right? And and uh, some of this we already covered a little bit with your 2008, you know, observation and and but talk about the Money Life Manifesto and what that means to you and how we can apply that in our own life. Yeah. So um, when I was getting my website started and or kind of my brand of Coach Carson, like what am I going to be all about? Um, I knew I wanted to teach about real estate investing, and I've been teaching that for a while. But I started thinking back to that 2007 experience. And, and, and I started thinking about what was the reason we actually invested in real estate. And I, I thought about that exercise my business partner and I did, where we just made a list of things that really mattered to us, that were important to us. And it, it made me realize that, um, I, this is kind of a tangent, and I'll bring all this back together. But in the, I wrote an article called The Money Life Manifesto. And I, there's a, a story about uh, Aristotle, who's an old philo- it was a, you know, philosopher in ancient Greece. And he would teach people about something called the golden mean uh, of, of a of a virtue. So if you want to be a good person, he would say you have to have these virtues. Virtues of like courage is one the example you would use. And but you know, courage is kind of a funny thing. Like you can have too much courage, and you can go jump off a cliff without a parachute. You know, that's 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 being like foolhardy. That's being stupid. Um, you can have too little courage though, and you can be a coward and you never do anything. You just kind of hide in a corner. But with courage, with a virtue, there's a golden mean. And that's what Aristotle taught um, in his kind of his philosophy. Well, and uh, it came to me like money is the same way, is that there's this golden mean of money where, you know, I, I kind of, we've all gotten there probably. I got off the tracks a little bit, giving, giving money too much importance. Um, you know, I'm going to be happy whenever I do more deals and have more money. And, you know, I tried to bring it back a little bit. We're always kind of balancing ourselves and trying to figure it out where, you know what, there's the things like relationships, there's time with your family, there's travel. Um, and so I, I, I sort of see our whole goal here as real estate investors and entrepreneurs is endlessly trying to figure out what our golden mean of money is for ourselves. You know, what, what is enough? Like when, when we reach this point where we've got enough money, enough finances, like, can we, can we say that? Can we acknowledge that? Can we know that? And that, that enough is going to be different for everybody. But that's the challenge, I think, of the Money Life Manifesto is to find that intersection of, you know, money, finance, investing, and life, and what you're here to do, and what matters to you, and what you want to contribute. And that, that contribution piece has really come to me a lot more as I've had more time to think about it. It's like, you know, we're, you're, you're here on earth. What, what are you going to do? You're going to contribute to your family. You're going to contribute to, your, to people who are listening to your podcast now. Y'all are doing an awesome job. You're giving back. You're sharing. And that's what you're going to be remembered for. That's what your legacy is going to be, is, is how much you contributed and gave. And as I've talked about that and kind of put that manifesto out there, it's been so cool because uh, there's so many different people who we have the common theme of investing in real estate and trying to achieve financial independence. But there's teachers who are working in some job that makes more money, but they really should be a teacher, but it, just, it doesn't make enough money. There's preachers. There's um, you know people who want to go on mission trips more. There's people who want to volunteer at their local charity. There's people who want to you know do housing, but they want to work in a housing market that's not going to make a lot of money, but it's going to be affordable housing for people. And it's so creative and cool to think about that, that money is kind of the first step. And then the next step that kind of you, the, from there is like, it's almost like you're, you're growing up again and get to figure out what you're going to do when you grow up. That's like the other side of financial independence is you're, you're, you're playing around with this idea of what matters to you. What can you contribute? Who's important to you? And it's a, it's an endless question, but I've had a lot of fun encouraging other people to think about that and to build a real estate investing business around that golden mean idea of, of kind of a balance and figuring it out. Yeah. And one cool thing about house hacking with that is that, you know, we hear a lot of stories as well of people, 
eliminating their housing expense and doing exactly what you talk about, doing what matters most, right? Uh, you talk about preachers and teachers and, and you know, people that are involved with the community, maybe people traveling abroad like you did in South America for 18 months, I believe it was, um, mm-hmm. right? And all these opportunities that come up with. And on top of that, from what we've found, house hackers tend to provide maybe a higher quality level of living for their tenant, right? Because they're already mm-hmm. living there. Maybe they renovate a little bit. They have a little more thoughtfulness than somebody that maybe lives across the country that doesn't really care, you know, treats it more as an investment, which is also fine. Um, but you're also bringing a quality product to the market for the people that you're, you know, uh, that are living with you. Um, yep. And so it seems to be, you know, house hacking is a great way to sort of tie into that uh, Money Life Manifesto that you talk about in the book. Absolutely. I, I love that y'all are, this is the topic of your show because mm-hmm. house hacking is, I mean, you, you beat me to the punch. I mean, you guys do it, you're doing it perfectly because it's, it's just a really awesome technique that has so many benefits. And I love what you pointed out there is like, you don't have to wait until you get to the end of the the top of the mountain of financial independence to start doing some of the stuff we're talking about. You know, just remember my 2009 trip, like I wasn't financially independent in 2009, but I had, I had enough of a foundation. I had I had my housing taken care of. I had very low expenses. I had a little bit of money coming in from rentals and I didn't, and, and you can, you can have this freedom and gradients. So each time you go a little bit farther up the mountain, you do a house hack, you cover all of your living expenses, like, and you save up some money, you can go on a trip for six months. Like that, that's the kind of freedom you can get like right now. And once you get a taste of it, I'm, I'm the only problem with that is like, it's kind of hard to go back in the box after you've gotten a little <laughs> bit of that. So you do a house hack, you realize you can live for free. You're like, okay. That was one deal. Like, I wonder what I can do now. And yeah. it's it's a fun puzzle. And I know you guys are already doing that, but it's it's something that you 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 get a lot of empowerment and confidence knowing that you can use these tools of real estate, of finance to change your life, to like open up all these possibilities. And I, I just think it's awesome. And it's it's fun to hear that you guys are teaching it and showing people how to do it, being an agent. And it's just that, that's what we're out all about. We're trying to spread the word and share share it with other people so that we can have other friends who will go travel with us and kind of hang out and enjoy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about savings rate. I mean, house hacking, in my opinion, is one of the best ways to increase your savings rate. Um, But how important is it to you that you track and increase your savings rate uh, to reach financial independence or fire? Yeah. If you had to boil the whole journey of getting to financial independence down to one mechanism, it's pretty much savings rate. If, If the more money you can save, the higher percentage of your job income or your earned income you can save, the quicker you will get to financial independence. That's just, it's just the mechanism. It's the, whether you're like a real estate person or you're Mr. Money Mustache, who's more like the index funds kind of people, like the thing we all have in common in the financial independence journey is we'd all know that. And, and so house hacking is like one of the awesome ways to reduce about a third of your housing expense. I think that's the average uh, housing expense for people in the US. It's about 30% or something like that. And so if you can eliminate that and you make 100,000 bucks a year or 80,000 bucks a year, whatever you make, you've just freed up a third of your your income to invest in another property, to save in your 401k, like what, you know, whatever you want to do. But but it's, it's, that's the thing you got to do first. Like you, you, can't, you can't apply all these investment strategies until you finally get that savings rate up to a point. You can, you can only do so, so much no money down. Like those are cool. Like no money down deals are great. But at some point, you've got to build a net worth and you've got to grow your net worth. And that only comes from that hard work of saving money. And I think one of the cool things about house hacking that you'd probably agree with is that um, one of the great ROIs of being a house hacker is that 33%. You know, and, and I tell people a lot, especially, you know, when I'm working with them as an agent is, uh, you know, somebody that a traditional 
uh, investor has to put 20 to 25 percent down. They need to cover reserves. Like right now with the mortgage market, you know, some are requiring 12 to 14 months reserves. Like they need a lot of money uh, to come just to buy a hundred thousand dollar property. Where right. you as a house hacker, you know, you, one of your great ROIs is increasing your saving rate by 30, like you said, 30% or, or 35%, whatever your housing expenses. Uh, and I think that's a great tool um, to think of is that, that way for a house actor. Yep, exactly. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tool that keeps on giving. You know, you yeah. live in a house, you enjoy it. And the other thing we hadn't talked about with house hacking, I know y'all probably talk about is that once you move out, um, you get to rent that property out and you get to keep it as a, as a, as a property. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it kind of keeps on giving once you, it benefits you when you live there, it benefits you when you move out. And I, I still have my fourplex, you know, it's, yeah. it's great. And I, I love it. And I don't plan on doing anything with it for a long time. So uh, one of the slogans in the book was, uh, you know, we touched on it a minute ago was don't wait on happiness. Um, you know, enjoy the peaks and the plateaus during the journey. Um, what does that mean to you? And how does that apply to, uh, you know, people kind of going forward? You talked about your 2009 experience. Yeah, I think it's, it's especially important for people in their twenties and thirties, uh, who are on this journey. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's tempting and it's okay to like get gung ho and say, all right, I got five years, I got seven years, I'm just going to save. And like, that, that's cool. Like a savings rate's important. Being frugal is important, like all that's good. But I think one of the biggest pushbacks people give on why they're not getting into that kind of journey to financial independence is like, oh man, you you know, you house hackers, you financial independence people, you're not enjoying life. You're not, you're not having fun with it. And that's a whole nother conversation that, you know, you have to spend money to have fun. Like I just don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But the thing is like the, the anecdote of that, I think, I mean, there's some truth to that, is that instead of like climbing right up the mountain and never stopping and achieving financial independence 10 years from now and just putting your head to the grindstone. Like I like the idea of looking at your climb up the mountain, like you climb, 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 you reach a plateau, you take a break. And that could be a like physical, literal break like I did in 2009 where I, I left the country and traveled. Like if that's your thing, like I recommend travel, I love it. Um, but if, even if that's not your thing, Maybe you just take a break from pushing it so hard, from saving so much money, from buying as many properties, and you and you just mentally take a break and chill out for a little bit. Maybe you want more. Maybe you pick up a new hobby, whatever. Um, I, that that balance has been really important for me because this is a ultra marathon. Like achieving financial independence is not a sprint. It's an ultra, ultra, ultra marathon. And for those who understand the ultra marathon sport, is it's all about endurance. It's about outlasting the the boredom, and uh, it's about outlasting the fatigue. And so, if if you want to reach that destination, you can get there. You can reach financial independence in seven years, ten years, fifteen years, if you really put your your mind to it. But that's still a long time, and you don't want to wait to live your life until then. And so, my answer when people push back and say, "Well, you're not enjoying your life." I say, well, there, there is a middle path. You know, you can do both. You can save money, be frugal, then make that list that we talked about earlier. What's important to you? What do you enjoy doing? And why, why would I wait until I retire to do that when nothing's guaranteed? Why don't I go travel to Spain and to Peru right now? Why don't I go do that Appalachian Trail that I've been talking about doing for forever? Why don't I go volunteer at that nonprofit that I've said is really important to me? And like, do it right now. Don't wait. Do it now and build your financial life around that. Very cool. On that note, um, what are your long-term goals in life? Yeah, it's it's kind of like I, I mentioned earlier. It's like almost like you're growing up and having to figure out what you're going to do when you get you grow up again. That's kind of where I am in some respects. Um, I have two kids, so I have a you know, one's nine and one's seven, and seeing them and and trying to give to them and teach them and be there for them is 
it's probably the most challenging job or the most rewarding I've ever had. You know, real estate investing seems easy to me to parenting. And I also have like enormous respect for elementary school teachers and the kind of value they add to our kids. And so that's, I don't know, that's, that's definitely what's next. Um, but the other thing, uh, we have some more travel plans. We like, once we're not quarantined in at some point, um, we thought about doing either another international trip where we go to Europe and maybe go to Spain. We have some friends who live there and kind of rekindle our Spanish. Our kids learned to speak Spanish when we were in Ecuador a couple of years ago. So we want to keep that going. Uh, we've also talked about maybe doing like a, a world schooling year. Like they go to a local school here, but maybe we go to like a homeschool on the road kind of thing. And we spend two or three months in Washington, D.C. and let them go to the museums for their history classes and go to the Smithsonian's and play Frisbee on the mall and the lawn and and then go spend another month up in Michigan and see friends up there and come see you guys. And then um, just kind of spend time in different places in the U.S., um, but but not not always on the road, spend like a month or two different places and act like we live there for a little while. <clears throat> That's kind of our travel style. We like to put down some roots, go where we know people, act, and get to know what it feels like to live in a place. And so we we thought about doing that too. Maybe do like a, a one or two year trip, just kind of roaming around and doing that a little bit. So those those are some personal goals. But another thing I'm really excited about, and I'm very new to as well, is is uh, giving away money. Uh, so we my my business coach Carson which up until a couple of years ago, didn't make any money. Like I had, a, it was a hobby that I said, well, wait a minute, I'm having to pay money to do this email list and all this. And mm -hmm. so I went back to my teaching roots and I'm, I charge money for a course and I've done a little bit of consulting and coaching and it started to make some profit about a year ago. And so I'm giving away half of the profits of that business. I'm turning it into a social business where the more money it makes, I give away profits and my wife and I are starting a, a charitable trust, a charitable foundation that you know, one of these days, I don't have a timeline on it, but I'd like to give away more money and try to see, play around with that, see how much money we can give away and, um, and just see where that goes. I love that. I love that. And, uh, you know, everything you do kind of resonates uh, with that approach, right? And, um, you know, I, I hear you talk a lot about that on, on different podcasts and, and uh, you talk about that with doing what matters most and, and uh, giving away is, is a very noble, noble thing. We'll see. It's going to be fun. It's going to, we'll see how it goes. And it's, it's another business, you know, you got to think like we started looking at it like, well, who, you know, there's so many people who need money and it's a, it's a, it's a little overwhelming to think about, but um, it's, it's a, we as entrepreneurs, I think have a special talent at building wealth and making money. And we also have a special talent at allocating money to the right spots. And that's what, that's what I've noticed. I'm really a big fan of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett as well. And yeah. they're, they're both really good at that. And it's been interesting to see both of them, their evolution. They're still investors. They still invest their money. But they, they started looking at societal problems and saying, like, how can we solve that? Like they use that entrepreneur. You know, entrepreneurs are pretty yeah. optimistic and bold. Like we're, we're doing some crazy stuff, all of us house hacking and real estate investing. Like you can all use that same skill to go to your local community and solve problems. Absolutely. And I, I think that's so cool, whether it's spending your money or spending your time, like be willing to take that entrepreneurial talent that all of you have and try to go solve some stuff. And, and you're not, you might not make any money from it. Like I'm working on a nonprofit in my town to try to build trails and biking trails and walking trails uh, to connect everything in our town. It's really important to me. I've made zero money. I've spent more time on that than I have my real estate investing business, but it's made small progress. And I can see the I can see how this little entrepreneurial venture of a, this local nonprofit is going to pay off over the next 20, 30, 40 years for the people in our community. And that's the kind of stuff that that's really cool. That's you're getting a rush out of it. And it's very, very entrepreneurial, but 
we, we need, like our society needs people like us who don't have to work a day job, who are willing to come solve these problems and, and spend our time on them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we're down here to the last few questions. Um, something that we like to you know, know just about mindset is uh, what, what separates potential house hackers from those that actually do it? Um, you know, we get a lot of people reaching out to us, but it seems like there's sort of this uh, barrier that people hit. What, what do you think that separates people that actually take the leap from the, the people that don't? I think there's a gap between the theory of uh, house hacking or really any other real estate investing strategy or wealth building strategy, and then the application of it. And that gap is often not knowledge, like surprisingly, like you, like if you have an agent like Bradley or you guys are, you're working with somebody like you, like you've got a ton of knowledge, like you've got information there. The, the barrier is often the, the kind of the, the guts or the courage or the, the gumption to take a risk where things badly. Like that's, that's hard. Like that's, that's an entrepreneurial skill that has nothing to do with the knowledge up in your head. It has to do with more with um, that Aristotle, you know, the, the courage thing, like the, you don't want to be foolhardy. Like you don't want to jump off a cliff without a parachute, but at some point, like you've got to take a leap. And if you make a mistake, you will not be the first one to make a mistake. I've made tons of mistakes. I don't want to, I don't want to leave this show without, you know, being transparent that I've, I've lost money on deals. Like I've done bad deals. I've made mistakes. I've had problems and I'm going to make more mistakes and lose probably more money. And, you know, on something I'm doing right now, probably. And all of us are like that. Nobody's going to be perfect. And so if you hold yourself to the standard that you got to be perfect, you're never going to be an investor. You're never going to be a house hacker. If you're willing to take a leap and be educated and do the best you can and build the best team and then and then take a step forward, then you'll adapt, you'll learn, you'll be flexible. Um, but that, that willingness to fail a little bit, I think is a big hurdle for people. So uh, we talk a lot about books on this show and always close out asking, uh, what your favorite books are. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, business or mindset book? Yeah, there's one I read right when I got out of college that still influenced me in a lot of different ways called the seven habits of highly effective people. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it sold millions and millions of copies, but um, I've, I've gone back to that book in so many different ways. Like it's, it's got the seven habits, like the first three habits are personal habits, like being proactive, um, you know, taking responsibility for your own actions. Um, it's thinking from the end, setting goals and working backwards. So it's like a really good personal development book, but it's also an awesome uh, negotiation book on how, and not negotiation in the sense that you're haggling with somebody, but it's negotiation. One of the, the fourth habit, I think, is think win-win. And I've, I've used that every single negotiation I've been in. I've, I've used those words often where I've said, you know, you and I are sitting across the table. Typically it feels like we're adversaries, but the thing is like, you're not going to sell me this property if you don't win, if you don't feel like you won. I'm not going to buy your property if I can't win. So let's just get that on the table, right? And if we if we both know that's true, now we can talk about the details and like see if we can figure out a puzzle to make us both win. Like that's all like what in a brilliant concept. And you you can't always win. Both people can't always win, but the more creative you are, that's where the creativity comes in. You start thinking about it, and there's also another idea about seek, uh, seeking first to understand and not to be understood. Of listening when you negotiate, you've got two ears, you have one mouth. Like remember that. Remember that ratio. Like you should be talking very little in a negotiation. You should be asking questions and listening, and being and not being it from a technique like you're trying to like use some tricky technique on somebody. Like just listen like with interest. They're a human being who has a great story to tell. Like ask questions, get to know them, and. So I guess that's those are those are the kind of like brilliant principled ideas that are in that book. And I've just I've, I've read it like five or six times before and I find myself quoting a lot from it. 
I really like that point too, you know, not being tricky or, you know, trying to trick your way into negotiation because that kind of closes the door for a potential second deal with that person. So if you are transparent, like you're saying, uh, that's going to build the long-term relationships like we've been talking about and open the doors for maybe deals in the future. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you look at every single transaction as a long-term transaction where even if you never did a deal with that person again, your reputation is is like your is your is is everything. Like if you if you screw somebody over and you have a a, a win lose deal, that person a loss right now. Excuse me. Um, but they're gonna that 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 karma or whatever you want to call it, it's gonna go around. The reputation is gonna follow you. So it's it's. It, um, I think Warren Buffett had a quote. He tells all the people in his companies, he's like, "I'm not gonna micromanage you, but if everything you did in your business, you assume that a, a really dogged reporter is gonna write about you and what you did on the front page of the paper tomorrow, whatever you did, you would act differently knowing that, wouldn't you?" And that, that's kind of the same thing. It's like you know, you don't. I'm not saying I've been perfect. I'm not saying any all of you are perfect, but if you kind of hold yourself to that standard of saying, well, all right, let's let's find a way to win. Let's find a way to both of us win and be transparent about it. it you can you can build some pretty good good cool deals together. Absolutely. Now, what about real estate books? Uh, well, I, I've been thinking a lot about John Schaub again because I'm doing a podcast interview. I'm doing a podcast on his book, so building wealth one house at a time. Uh, is a really is, is was a foundational book for me. It's one of the uh, it's it sort of helped me think about that philosophy of just building a really simple portfolio of properties, owning them free and clear, and how that's a really uh, clear path to financial independence. He was the one who sort of set me on that path. And John, so John Schaub, building wealth one house at a time. There's so many good real estate books out there though, but I, I think that's a that's a good one. Absolutely, and your book as well. Like I said earlier, I mean it's a book I refer. Probably the most specifically, if someone's really trying to figure out real estate, it's very thorough. Uh, re- retire early with real estate. I got it here. I wouldn't even give it to somebody because it's marked up so much. Uh, <laughs> but some of my books I give away, but not this one. This, this one, some, somebody wouldn't be able to concentrate. But it really is a great book. Um, you. And you can order that on Bigger Pockets, I believe. Thank you so much. Cool. So uh, before we go, what's next on your bucket list? Oh, man. You know, I'm stuck in that. We're stuck in the house for the next couple months. So, um, I'm having a hard time thinking about that one, but I, I think the travel again, I think I want to travel with my family. I'm really itching and looking forward to that, uh, to doing that. Um, although, you know, s- some of the bucket list items, it's been cool to do some of these travel and go there, but like being stuck at home a little bit has, has, has been kind of nice. And it's a silver lining of an otherwise bad situation is that we're spending a lot of time together. We're playing games that like we've, we pulled out sellers of Catan and Risk and Monopoly and like, yeah. So we've been, we've been like, my kids are learning all these games that, you know, 20 years from now, they're like, oh, remember that time we were playing, you know, sellers of Catan with dad and mom and how mom kept on winning every single game. Like it's, that's <laughs> the kind of, that kind of stuff's pretty, it's not on the bucket list necessarily, but that's, it's really awesome. It's been a good time. Absolutely. Well, Chad, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Potentially, we're going to set up links um, you know, to, you know, the book and the course and stuff, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, thanks. It's uh coachcarson.com is my home on the web. And the things I'm working on these days, I have a newsletter where if, if people want to hang out with me on a weekly basis, you go to coachcarson.com forward slash 
newsletter. And I have a toolkit that I give everybody when they sign up for my newsletter that has like the checklist I use to buy a property. It has the uh, closing checklist that I use whenever I'm buying a property to make sure you don't forget anything or, you know, you, you get the proper, the, the closing, you forgot to get insurance or the right kind of insurance. And so those, those are things you can just check that out and you'll get notifications when I have a new podcast episode, a new blog article. I've been playing around with YouTube a lot. I'm having a lot of fun just making as much free content as I can uh, on those three channels, the blog, the podcast, and my YouTube channel. Yeah, a lot of great resources. So we'll put links to all of that uh, in the show notes. But uh, Chad, we really appreciate you coming on. Hey, thanks, guys. You, you were well prepared, and I loved it. You guys, you're doing awesome stuff with your show. Hey, we Thank appreciate you, it. Now you have a great night. You too.